0: Open your Bible, please, to the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5. We come in our study of the Philadelphia Confession of Faith to an examination of the contents of chapter 13, the subject of sanctification. To refresh your memory, let me say that the Philadelphia Confession of Faith was adopted in 1742 or 44 the dates are uncertain by the baptists who had settled in this newly founded country the philadelphia confession of faith was taken from the london confession of faith verbatim only with a name changed which is the oldest baptist confession that we have in existence It was adopted by the Baptists in England in 1689. So in studying Bible doctrine, what Baptists believe, that is, what they should believe, what our heritage has been built upon. I am trying to take you back to the oldest source that we have in existence, wherein Those who were our founding fathers did systematize the teachings of the Word of God into a doctrinal confession. It has long uh, been uh, way overdue for our people to be reminded that Baptists do have a creed other than the Bible, and that that creed is the confession of faith, the articles of faith and that these are founded upon the word of God. We need a systematic setting forth of the scripture so that we might better understand the truth. We come now to a consideration of the doctrine of sanctification. In First Thessalonians chapter 5 we read, beginning with verse 21 through verse 23, Prove all things, hold fast that which is good abstain from all appearance of evil. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 23 the apostle Paul prays that the whole man in body, soul, and spirit might be sanctified and preserved blameless until the time of the coming of the Lord Jesus. We need to note, first of all, before we look directly into the confession of faith, two or three things by way of introduction. First of all, sanctification is the work of all three persons within the Godhead. So this means that sanctification is both positional and practical or progressive. So get these words in your mind. Sanctification is positional, and secondly, it is practical or progressive. The positional aspect of sanctification is generally overpassed. So I believe that it would be profitable to give some attention to this aspect of the subject that you might better understand the whole of sanctification. The word sanctification itself means simply to set apart for holy usage. Therefore, an object with life or without life could be sanctified unto the Lord for his use, as was the tabernacle and the vessels in the Old Testament, along with certain men who were set apart to be used of God in the holy service. First of all, sanctification by God the Father is in election, where from before the foundation of the world he set apart those who were to be redeemed by the blood of his Son, and so to become his own personal property, holy vessels fitted for his service. Therefore, sanctification by the Father is an eternal position that we have in the purpose and will of God, whereby he has chosen a people unto eternal life. But further, we are sanctified by the righteousness of the Lord Jesus, which gives to us an unchangeable standing before God in holiness. Sanctification in this sense of the word means, that we are considered by God in position as righteous because of the righteousness of the Lord Jesus. Now, this is not justification, this is sanctification. It is true that we are justified by the righteousness of Christ, so that sin can never again condemn us. But at the same time, Christ is made unto us sanctification, so that we are viewed by God, complete in holiness. In other words, as he views us in our position and standing in the Lord Jesus Christ and his righteousness, God is not able to see any sin within us. However, we know that our position is not true of our experience. For whereas in position we stand already complete in the Lord Jesus, already totally righteous in his righteousness, we know that in our experience that we find sin abounding in our lives. Therefore, by virtue of Christ's redemption, we are progressively and practically sanctified by the third person of the Holy Trinity, God the Holy Spirit, until this work of rooting out sin and its power will be completed at the second coming of the Lord Jesus and at our resurrection or time of change. It is this phase of sanctification that the confession of faith primarily considers, that progressive. Growth in God's grace, whereby we are gradually, by the workings of the Holy Spirit, being delivered from the dominion, the power, the rule, the practice, and the habit of sin. But before we look at these details concerning the experience of sanctification, we need to understand something of the terms old man and new man in order that we might better understand what practical sanctification is itself. I'm sure that many of you are aware of the fact that there is abounding in the evangelical Christian world today, the so-called higher life movement where people are always talking about crucifying the old man and putting him to death so that they become more and more alive unto the Lord Jesus Christ. As a result, a distinction is made between a spiritual Christian and a carnal Christian. Now these distinctions are not biblical, and so we need to understand the Bible's definition of its own terms rather than that which is being used today by certain groups who believe that men can reach in experience if not sinless perfection and experience almost equal to it. In most groups today the terms old man and new man have come to mean the two natures in the believer and so the two natures in conflict one with the other. Therefore it has become common to blame sin on the old man and anything of good on the new man. But I believe a closer examination of the scriptures in the usage of these terms will reveal that the old man and the new man do not have reference to the principles of righteousness and sin that indwell the believer and are in conflict with one another. But instead, the old man is used as a description of the total unregenerate person, that is, the old man in Adam before the time of conversion. So when the term old man is used with reference to a Christian, it is always used in contrast to what the Christian now is and as an incentive as to what the Christian ought to practice being a new man. For the new man has reference to the totally regenerate person, who through conversion ceases being in Adam therefore ceases being an old man, and has become a new man, a new creation in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now though the old and new man do not have reference to the two principles within the believer, there is taught in the Bible very clearly that in every child of God there is indwelling sin. There is a sin nature. But indwelling sin is not to be equated with the old man. When it comes to the believer, the old man is dead. He has been put away. He is destroyed. So sanctification is not the lifelong process of excruciating spiritual pain of crucifying The old man. Do you realize that crucifixion is the only form of death that you cannot commit suicide with? Now, a man can shoot himself, a man can stab himself, a man can poison himself, a man can burn himself, a man can drown himself, a man can throw himself from a high place, and so on, but a man cannot crucify himself. It is absolutely ridiculous to talk about spiritual suicide in crucifying the old man. The most you could do is nail your feet down, nail a hand down, then you would never be able to nail the other hand down and you'd never be able to get the cross into an upright position. Crucifixion is that which is inflicted as a punishment by another, so the old man has been crucified by Our Lord Jesus Christ, and that by his work of grace. Now let's look at a few of the scriptures that bring this out. First, in the book of Colossians, chapter 3. In verse 9, where the subject of practical sanctification is being discussed, the Apostle Paul writes, Lie not one to another, seeing that ye, watch now the language, have put off the old man with his deeds, verse 10, and have put on the new man which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Now the exhortation here is not put off the old man, but the exhortation is put away lying which is characteristic of those who are old men in Adam which was characteristic of you prior to the time of your conversion. Now, Paul says the reason that you ought to put away lying is because you have already once and for all put off the old man with his deeds, and you have put on the new man which was created by God, which was created in the new birth at the time of conversion by God. So this is a once-for-all act that should result in our living like new men in the Lord Jesus Christ, not a process of crucifying the old man. Now turn to the book of Romans, chapter 6, Romans chapter 6. A careful consideration of these things will give you some peace of mind and assurance of faith in the midst of your spiritual conflict. In Romans chapter 6, in verse 6, we read, Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Now the picture here is the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And as the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus was a once and for all act, so is this fact that our old man is crucified with him. Now, the King James translation of this passage of Scripture does not bring out the Greek grammar in the way as it should read, for the verb here uh, with reference to being crucified is not in the present tense, the old man is crucified, or in the past tense, it's in the aorist tense. You will remember that in the Greek language, the aorist tense, and by the way, the New Testament was written in Greek, the aorist tense means an act that has occurred in the past, that is finished at a given point of time, never again to be repeated. So this literally reads, knowing this, that our old man was at the point of time in our conversion crucified with Christ, never again to be repeated. Now, the next scripture where the old man and the new man appear is in the book of Ephesians. And this is the most difficult passage of Scripture, and of course is the passage of Scripture that is used by the higher life movement with reference to the believer actively going around daily trying to crucify the old man and trying actively to put on the new man. Though we examine somewhat the Scripture on Sunday evening, let us look at the grammar and structure of the Scripture this evening in a little more detail to get the picture. In Ephesians chapter 4 and in verse 20 we read, But ye have not so learned Christ, verse 21, if so be, that ye have heard him, and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus. Now it's a continuation of the same thought in verse 22, that ye put off concerning the former conversation the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that ye put on the new man which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Now the Apostle Paul, though in this Ephesian passage, is treating the subject of practical holiness, outward conduct, Christian behavior, how we ought to live, he is not showing that this living comes about by an activity on the part of the Christian putting to death an old man or putting off the old man as such and putting on the new man. But he is showing that because we have put off the old man and we have become new men in Christ, we cannot allow the principles, the conduct, the corruption of the old man to sit in the driver's seat with reference to our behavior. This is just not becoming the child of God. Now, put off and put on concerning the old and new man man, are infinitives, but they are infinitives in the aorist tense. So this means that whenever this happens in the experience of the child of God, it happens once and for all. And and it is the result of having been taught of Christ as the truth is in Jesus, and having heard him. So we are new men if converted, and the old man is dead. So it is incorrect to speak of the old man as remaining in the believer. No child of God is an old man. He is a new man. All things have become new. But it is correct to speak of the believer, the Christian, the child of God, as having a sin principle, an old nature or indwelling sin that is in habitual conflict with his person. So a child of God goes through a spiritual warfare all the days of his life. My dear friends, there never will come a time in your experience if you are a child of God when you will not have the spiritual conflict described in Galatians chapter 5 as the flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. If you ever reach that point in your experience where you become in your own eyes holy so that you no longer have a spiritual conflict. You can at that point doubt whether you've been saved or not. Now this conflict is not spoken of as a tension between the old man and the new man. Nowhere in the Bible are we said that the old man and the new man are in warfare with one another. But in Galatians 5.17 it is said to be tension between the flesh and the spirit. In Romans chapter 7 and verse 20 it says it is said to be a conflict between sin that dwelleth in me and me, sin and me. In Romans 7.22 it is said to be a conflict between the law of God and the law of sin. So it is also pointed out to be a tension in the book of Romans chapter 7 between the law of my mind, wherein I would do that which is right, and that law in my members which reach out to do that which is wrong. So with this as background, we may note the new man is the regenerate man, the old man is the unregenerate man, and as new men, new creations in Christ, we are to be concerned with progressive sanctification, that is, that we grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, that sin, as a dominating principle, be progressively and by degrees defeated in our experience. So now turning to the Philadelphia Confession of Faith, let us note from paragraph 1 that the regenerate, being a new man, is able to develop in grace and die more and more to sin. We read in section 1, They who are united to Christ, effectually called and regenerated, having a new heart and a new spirit created in them, in other words, becoming new men, through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection, are also further sanctified, really and personally, through the same virtue, by his word and spirit dwelling in them. The dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed, and the several lusts thereof are more and more weakened and mortified or put to death, and they more and more quickened and strengthened in all saving graces to the practice of all true holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Those words are a summation of several passages of Scripture on the subject. But let me point out three things. First of all, from this statement in the Confession, we may note that sanctification is by virtue of Christ's death and resurrection. In other words, apart from the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ came into this world and died to pay our sin debt was raised again on the account of the debt being fully discharged, there could be no such thing as sanctification. We could not have holy conduct. For sanctification is closely connected with being united to Christ, effectually called, and regenerated, having a new heart and a new spirit. We know that the effectual call and regeneration Whereby we're given a new heart and a new spirit, is based upon the fact that the Lord Jesus has satisfied the demands of God's divine justice in full so that the sin debt has been paid in our stead. In the second place, it is stated that the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, sanctifies us through means of the word of God Open your Bible to the Gospel of John chapter 17 The Lord Jesus Christ in his high priestly prayer prays in verse 17 Sanctify them through thy truth thy word is truth My dear friend I have little patience with people who cry down the importance of Bible teaching and Bible doctrine, because we know for one thing that nobody can be saved apart from the teachings of the Word of God. By the foolishness of preaching, God saves them that believe. So God uses the word as a means to salvation. But here we see that men cannot even grow in holiness. They cannot develop in sanctification apart from the word of God. Now, people may talk about their experiences, they may talk about their practices, their exercises, this and the other, but that does not bring about sanctification. As important as is prayer, prayer does not bring about your sanctification. Your sanctification is brought about by the Spirit of God molding you after his word. Therefore, the more of his word that is laid up in mind and heart, in knowledge and in practice, the more sanctified you become, the more you grow in grace. But you cannot grow in grace apart from growing in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore when Christ prayed for our sanctification, he said, Sanctify them by thy truth, thy word is truth. Then the third thing to be noticed from section one of the Confession is that in this process of sanctification, the dominion of sin is weakened, and the believer is strengthened in grace. He becomes more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me at this point remind you that salvation is in three tenses. You have been saved, you are being saved, and one day you shall be saved. The past tense of salvation is justification, whereby we have been delivered from the guilt of sin so that we never again can be condemned on the account of sin. The present aspect of salvation is sanctification, whereby we are being delivered from the dominion of sin, from the rule of sin, from the power of sin. The future aspect of salvation is glorification, wherein we shall be delivered from the very presence or reality of sin itself. Sin shall shall then be obliterated, done away with, so that it will not exist. But now, in this life, in practical holiness, sin is not obliterated. There is indwelling sin. There is conflict so the child of God has an old, corrupted nature that is capable of sinning every sin he could have sinned prior to the time of his conversion. But the difference is, being brought under the dominion of the sanctifying influence of the Holy Spirit of God through his word, we do not let sin have dominion over us. It does not. Rule us. In the second place, from section 2 of the Confession of Faith, on the chapter concerning sanctification, we may note that sanctification pervades the whole man, but is never perfect in this life. We read, This sanctification is throughout the whole man, yet imperfect in this life. There abideth still some remnants of corruption in every part, whence ariseth a continual and irreconcilable war, the flesh lusting against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. Now let us turn to the opening scripture that we used this evening to introduce the subject. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 23. This teaches that the sanctifying power of God the Holy Spirit pervades or permeates throughout the whole regenerated man. Here the Apostle Paul prays, and the very God of peace one's spiritual attitude. There is an interaction because we are a unit, one person, not split up into three different parts, but we are one person uh, with three aspects of being. However, when man sinned, he became a dichotomy. That means he started existing in two parts. For the spirit, which is God consciousness, collapsed in the fall into the soul, which is man consciousness or self-consciousness, and though man continued having a sense of religion and a knowledge of God, he sought to create God after his own image. But in salvation, God recreates man, whereby he becomes a living spirit and again becomes a trichotomy, or man, in three parts, body, soul, and spirit. In common with all life, we have a body. In common with all animals, a soul, which is self-consciousness, the body is earth-consciousness, and the spirit is God-consciousness, which belongs to man and to man alone. From this statement that sanctification pervades the whole man, it still says there are remnants of corruption in every part. So that there is a continual and irreconcilable warfare going on within the believer. There remains indwelling sin. There is a conflict between the two natures, and ev- and a child of God will never be delivered totally from that conflict. As a matter of fact, the closer you are brought under the scrutiny of God's word. Under the light of the glory of Christ, the more intensified the conflict will become. I want you to note now in Romans chapter 6, beginning with verse 12, we have an admonition. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Don't let it be king that you should obey it in the lusts thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin. But yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members—that is, your hands, your feet, your eyes, your mouth, your ears, and so on—as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law but under grace. And so we have the admonition in this warfare to declare who is in conclusion, I want you to note from the third section of the confession of faith on the chapter or in the chapter on sanctification that genuine progress, genuine progress, is made in that all believers strive toward perfect holiness in the fear of the Lord. I don't say they reach it, I say they strive toward it. So we read in the Confession of Faith, in which war, although the remaining corruption for a time may much prevail, yet through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying Spirit of Christ, the regenerate part doth overcome. And so the saints grow in grace, perfecting holiness in the fear of God pressing after an heavenly life in evangelical obedience to all the commands which Christ as head and king in his word hath prescribed to them. So, my dear friends, there will be conflict in this life, but there will also for the Christian be growth in the knowledge of God's word in the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This growth will be a lifelong process, and sin will not be rooted out until we are changed completely into the image of the Lord Jesus, the time of our glorification, when he shall return again.